Bibles to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. Jesse has gone this week preaching up in Skern Lake, New York. So we'll be here this week without him. So let's pray for him as he goes up and preaches up at Word of Life. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be here this morning. We thank you for Pastor Jesse and for his love for your word. Pray that you would be with him as he's away this week. That he would be refreshed at the same time that the people who are sitting under his teaching this week would be transformed through the preaching of your word. That you would use him mightily as he's away. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to be together. Be with us as we um, consider your glory. We consider your greatness. Consider your grace in our lives and your goodness, your generosity, and that we would be transformed through thinking about you, that we would ponder upon your, your characteristics that would turn into praise, and then we would see the connection between that and when we leave this, this building and go into the world, and that we would see that praise should always turn into proclamation as we talk to those around us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Do you know where you were on January 22nd, 2006? It's kind of a random day in history. But there is a great event that happened on that day. And that is the day that Kobe Bean Bryant, I might add the greatest basketball player of all time, scored 81 points in a basketball game. 81 points. This is the second most points ever scored in a basketball game over 150,000 games in NBA history. This is the second most. Wilt Chamberlain scored 100, but he was five inches taller than everybody else, and they were throwing him the ball. They were like breaking rules to get him to score. So one could make the argument that this was the greatest performance in NBA history. And I was there. Kobe was my favorite player. He grew up in Italy. He speaks Italian. So of course, he's my favorite player. He played for the Lakers, my favorite team. And my incredible girlfriend at the time, Jenny, who of course I married after this, bought me tickets to go watch this game. I had never been to an NBA game before, and it just so happened that my first game to see Kobe, he breaks, he has the second most points in NBA history. And I was there. You should have seen me for weeks after that. I told everyone. That I got out of the arena. I called my, co my basketball coach from high school. I hadn't seen him in years. I called all my teammates. I called random people. I, call, I talked to random strangers. I said, you know, you, you see that game last night? I was there. I was there. I bring it up in most inappropriate times. In fact, I even put it into sermons years later. <laughs> it was so exciting. And it was such an easy story to tell. It's such an exciting story to tell to people because I got to see my favorite player do probably the greatest thing in NBA basketball history. And I think we all have stories like that. Probably everyone in the room has a story like that, not as great as that, but a story like that. The kind of stories that stand out among the rest. Events in our lives that leave such a mark that we must tell everyone we meet. And yet, there is one story that is far greater than any story you could ever tell 
you cannot possibly exaggerate this story. The story of your salvation is so incredible and so great. And yet, for some reason, even though it, it's far outmatches any other story we can tell, we tell it less often than talking about a dumb basketball game. Why is that? Why is it? And it seems like even as years go by, as we get older, we're almost less likely to talk about the most incredible story in the history of mankind. When God took us from death, from hell, gave us an eternity in heaven with him. And there's no way to exaggerate that story too. How do you exaggerate the story of your salvation? How sinful were you? How, how desperate were you? How dead were you? How far was God from you? Was it just a couple miles away? From here to the moon? From here to the sun? From here to eternity? That's more like it. Can you exaggerate eternity? And yet, the farther removed we are from the story of our salvation, from the moment of our salvation, the less likely we are to talk about it with as much passion or even talk about it at all. And in Psalm 145, I think, we have the solution to that. Because David here, and I, I would make the case that this is David towards the end of his life, this is the last psalm in the Psalter with his name on it. David is probably at the end of his life and he's more in love with God than he ever has been in his life. He's more likely to talk about him to the world. He's been through a lot. We know what David's been through. And yet, here he is, possibly at the end of his life, incredibly excited to proclaim the Lord to the people around him. Look at how this psalm starts. He says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. First, you see in verse one that he talks about his God, my God and King. This is someone he knows. He stands out as far as the rest of the world around him because he knows in a personal way his God. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. We know the Lord. We have a relationship with him. We're not trying to earn his love. We're not trying to earn uh, his, his trust. We simply know him and we love him and we know for certain that we will spend eternity with him. This is the difference between David and the other kings around him. But then he says, a, he makes a promise that I think is, is an impossible promise because he says, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Is that a promise you can make as a believer? Can you promise that tomorrow morning when you wake up that you will bless the Lord? Who knows what's gonna happen tomorrow? Who knows what's gonna happen tonight? You may have a sleepless night tonight for whatever reason. Circumstances happen in our lives that cause us to, to become, to, to, to lose trust, to, to have uh, depression, to, to, to be discouraged. And yet David's making a promise right now when he's not maybe in a, in a time of turmoil. He's making a promise that tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning when I wake up, I will praise the Lord. Now this, this psalm is, is called, if you can see at the beginning, before he even starts with, I will extol you, my God and King, he says, a song of praise of David. David is entitling the psalm, a psalm of praise. Now, we could make the case that many of the psalms, if not most of the psalms, are psalms of praise. But none of them are entitled 
a psalm of praise. David never says this psalm is specifically a psalm of praise, except in this one. I've read all 150, so I, I checked it, so don't have to do it. I checked it. Took a long time, but I wanted to see. It's the only one that says a song of praise. So if there's any song, any psalm in the Bible that is a psalm of praise, it's this one. And David is about to show us, walk us through why he can praise the Lord tomorrow morning when he wakes up. And he can promise that tomorrow morning when he wakes up, he will think about the Lord, he will ponder upon the Lord. That pondering will turn into praise of the Lord and ultimately that praise of the Lord will produce proclamation as he goes into the world and interacts with the people around him. There's five reasons why you can promise to the Lord that you will praise him tomorrow. And here's the five reasons. Reason number one, because God is absolutely great. Five reasons we should praise God until our very last breath. And the first reason is because God is absolutely great. God's greatness. Look at what he says in verse three. He says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Think about that language. He says, Dave, he says that God's greatness is unsearchable. He doesn't even have words to describe the greatness of God. God's, God's so great that I can't even begin to put it into language. That means that he's saying there is no Hebrew word that can truly explain the greatness of God. There is no Greek word. There is no English word. There is no Italian word that you can explain, with which you can explain the greatness of God. The only way to explain the greatness of God in David's mind is by saying that it is impossible to explain, that it is unsearchable. It is impossible to grasp. It is unexplainable. That's what he's saying. God is so great that you can't explain him. He doesn't fit into our small minds. And if the God of the universe could fit in our minds, if we could reason ourselves to him, he wouldn't be a God worth worshiping. That's what David is saying. God is so unsearchable. His greatness doesn't fit into our understanding, into our language, into any part of us. The only way to explain them is by saying you can't explain them. And let me tell you this. Eternity, eternity will not be long enough to truly grasp the greatness of God. That's what we'll be doing for eternity. Just our minds will be expanding in understanding of how great God is and eternity is simply not long enough to help us truly grasp it. There are no words that can do him justice. And so what happens when somebody considers the God of the Bible, when they think about this God? Well, verse four tells us that one generation, look at this, shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Another way to say declare is proclaim. David is convinced that if you think about God's greatness, that that's gonna produce a proclamation of the greatness of God as from generation to generation, from population to population, from neighbor to neighbor, you're going to proclaim it to the world around you. True faith in the real God will always bring about proclamation. It always has to. There's no such thing as a closet Christian. There's a movie that came out a few years ago called The War Room, where a lady prays in her closet, wonderful. 
Absolutely. It's great. They were praying. You got to be praying each and every day. But it's fascinating that David says that what happens in your closet doesn't stay in your closet. It comes out and it bursts forth. And the minute you walk out of that closet, you must tell people about the God you were just worshiping in there. Because when you ponder about this God, you must praise this God. And David would make the case that you can't stop at just praising him. You must proclaim him to the world. Look at what he says in verse five. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. This word meditate is, is I will constantly think about it. I will, I will begin each day considering the greatness of God. And I will not only just consider, I will pound it in my head. I will have to remind myself because like I said, circumstances come and go. Difficulties come, trials come, cancer comes. And if we are not ready and prepared for battle, we're gonna fall. We're gonna get discouraged. We're gonna get depressed. We're gonna cower away and not proclaim. And yet, the Bible says, David says, that if you will meditate, if you will ponder upon the words, of, uh, upon the greatness of God, that that will produce praise. And eventually, as you get out of your closet, as you get out of your house, as you get out into the world, you will proclaim him to the world. So what are we thinking about when we think about the greatness of God? Well, God is absolutely great in every way, in the way he made you, and his ability to sovereignly take care of the entire world at once, that he can hear all our prayers at the same exact time, each and every servant of his, as we wake up in the morning and we're praying, he can hear us all simultaneously and he can answer those prayers and he's answering those prayers in a way that it works for good for every single person that's praying at the same moment. Not only at that moment, but for years to come. He's got it all figured out. He is incredibly great. We can't even fathom how great he is. And, and, and we need to be constantly reminding ourselves about the greatness of God because really easily we can become discouraged and we can believe the world's lies that God perhaps is not great, that God is not sovereign and then we can make man sovereign in our own hearts, in our own minds. We can make ourselves ultimately sovereign and really ultimately we can make ourselves out to be God's which is a huge danger at all times. And so David says you must remind yourself, you must wake up in the morning and say, God alone is great. You must consider the greatness of God. He goes back into proclamation. Look at verse six. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. He's just overflowing in proclamation, isn't he? He can't help it. He's sitting here writing this psalm and as he's considering, as he's pondering upon the greatness of God, he can't help but praise him for it and he's saying that the, the natural result will be to proclaim him to the world around them. Perhaps a lot of people have not seen that connection between praising and proclaiming, but David is overflowing with it. He has to tell people. He must go out and tell others about the greatness of God. Do you think about the greatness of God? When you wake up in the morning, so easy, we're all tempted to pick up our phones and, and right away consider all the emails we have and current events. That's the first thing we do at times. David is convinced that the first thing you should do 
the first thing you should do when you wake up in the morning is as you're sitting there, as you're laying there, that you would think about the greatness of God. And as you ponder upon the God, God's greatness, you're gonna, you're gonna have to praise him. Your, your natural result, if you're a believer, is gonna be to overflow in praise to him. You're gonna thank him. You're gonna tell him how great he is. You're not just gonna think about it. You're gonna tell him because you love him. And then you're gonna go and proclaim it to the world around you, the greatness of the God that you worship. It's not easy to do. We're so distracted. It's hard, it's hard even on a Sunday to wake up and pray, even though I'm going in, a, in the house of worship to think about God this way because we're always distracted. You know, what was it? Lionel Richie who sang Easy Like Sunday Morning. Ain't no way Lionel Richie went to church with kids on Sunday morning. It's, no, it's not possible. It's not easy like Sunday morning, getting the kids ready. Are you kidding me? You ask a mom, who, my, my beautiful wife, has, we have four kids. I came here a lot earlier, so she had to bring four kids to church. I'd be thinking about a thousand things, lunch, all these things. And yet, and yet, David says that the first thing you need to do each and every day, no matter how hard your life is, is to think about the greatness of God. And when you ponder upon the greatness of God, it will produce praise and ultimately it will produce proclamation. This is just enough. Just thinking about God's greatness is enough to produce all these things for us. But David doesn't stop there. He continues. He talks about God's goodness. The second point, the second reason why you can praise God, you can promise to praise him and proclaim him tomorrow is because he is just good. Look at verse seven. They shall, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. God is so good, he's famous for it. What would be more terrifying than a, a great omnipotent God, which we saw in verses three to six? He's a great omnipotent God who is not good. The God of the Bible is absolutely sovereign. He can do as he pleases in every way. And he does as he pleases. How terrifying would it be if this God that the Bible describes is not good? We would all be in the fetal position, uh, unable to move out of fear. Yet the God of the Bible is good. That's what made the Greek gods so scary. They weren't as great as the God of the Bible. They were limited to their locations, like Neptune was limited to the sea, right? And so the people were afraid as they crossed the sea to do anything wrong because they were afraid, well, what if Neptune's having a bad day today, right? They were afraid, so they threw some, something into the water. They did some kind of thing to try to get Neptune to be happy with them. Well, think about Neptune on steroids. I mean, God is absolutely so much greater than Neptune. He can do things that Neptune can't do. He can do as he pleases. We would be cowering in fear if God were not good, and yet, God is, is so good, he's famous for his goodness. Now, this is all a matter of perspective because I talk to people all the time. I go to George Mason University, for example, and I talk to people on the campus, and they don't think God is good. A lot of people. I mean, not everyone there, but I talk to some atheists who think that the God of the Bible is evil. It's a matter of perspective because, you know, I always get the question, how can a, how can a good God allow good people allow bad things to happen to good people. 
And, you know, I, I would say, you know, you know, I usually flip the question on them and I say, how can a just God allow good things to happen to bad people? You know, I, I kind of answer the question like this. How could God let me even answer this question to you after all the sinning I've done this week? How can I even be allowed to even talk today? How, how did God in his, in his incredible mercy allow me to wake up this morning and allow, allow me to even preach the Bible this morning? That's an incredible, uh, I can't even comprehend it. It's just a matter of perspective. It's a matter of perspective because in my mind, I deserve hell for eternity. That's what I believe. That's what the Bible tells me. As I read the Bible, I should be in hell right now in agony and I would deserve every second of it. And yet, I'm not. I actually know the Lord. I'm gonna spend eternity with him. I get to preach his word. Are we, are we is it crazy or what? God is only good. He's been so good. The fact that we're all here this morning, breathing, is an act of his absolute mercy and goodness towards us. It's just a matter of perspective. Do you believe that? Look, verse eight, the Lord is, is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is so good. Look at verse nine. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. The Lord is so good that David says that even unbelievers benefit from his goodness. Non-Christians that benefit everyone. He's good to all. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. He's slow to anger and rich in loving kindness. And his goodness and his greatness are not in competition with one another. The first two points are not in competition with one another. He can be both great and good at the same exact time, all the time, 24-7. Do you recognize how good God is? It's hard to do sometimes. It's hard to remember, hey, I deserve hell right now and I'm alive. So anything I get above that is, is an absolute act of mercy and goodness. But yet, if you're anything like me, you probably complain at least once a day, right? We constantly complain. We're constantly tempted to complain. As soon as something hard happens, we, we tend to instantly question the Lord and his goodness. It's the first thing that goes. And yet, David says that God is so good, he's so merciful, he's so gracious, he's so slow to anger, his goodness is, is, is even hard to describe. It's almost unsearchable as well. So let me ask you, do you wake up in the morning and think to yourself, do you ponder upon the goodness of God? Do you meditate about the goodness of God in your life each and every day? Because if you do, you're gonna praise him for it. You just have to. David praises the Lord for how good he is to him. And then David would make the case that if you ponder about his goodness, and you praise him for his goodness, that you will proclaim his goodness to anyone. You will just shout it. You shout it out. If somebody happens to hear you, great. You're just shouting it as you go. That's how excited you are about how good God has been to you. And so you'll proclaim it to the world around you. We need to keep going. There's, there's his glory as well. The third point is that God is absolutely glorious. 
Look at what it says in verse 11. It says, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. When David thinks about God and he, he thinks about him as a king, obviously David is a king himself. And when he sees him on his throne, he thinks about how glorious his kingdom is. So he associates God's kingdom with his glory. And, and as a king, you would, you would begin to understand what David is feeling when he thinks about God's kingdom. David's kingdom is so temporary. We know he's gonna reign for 40 years. It's not gonna be a peaceful reign. He's got people wanting to take away his throne from all kinds of places, including his own family. Absalom is gonna try to steal his throne. He's gonna even succeed for a little bit of time. And yet David, when he's thinking about heaven, he's thinking about the eternal kingdom of God, he is just astonished with God's power in being able to keep a kingdom forever. Because he knows scripture. He knows that God's kingdom is gonna last forever. And his, uh, he's just so astonished when he thinks about that because he can't even control his own kids. And here God is gonna control all his people for eternity. And he's gonna keep the devil and his people in hell for eternity. And he is gonna be able to control all things at all times for eternity. We are limited. David's limited. He's limited to how strong his soldiers are. He's limited to how many resources he has. He's limited to if his kids obey him or not. God has unlimited power and he doesn't need soldiers. He doesn't need anything. He's able to do all just by speaking. God is so glorious that he has angels so holy and glorious. He's got angels 24-7 just reminding anybody who's there, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's what we find out in Isaiah 6 with these seraphim, that that's their job all day, every day. That's what they'll do for eternity is remind the people who are there about the holiness and glory of God. That's beyond glorious. And then he goes on. He Look at what he says. He says in verse 12, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. God's kingdom is gonna last forever. Uh, let me ask you do, you, do you think about God's kingdom that's coming? Do you think about how glorious God is? Do you think about heaven each and every day? You're gonna spend, you know, eternity in heaven. This life is nothing compared to it. And yet we spend most of our time thinking about what we're gonna do in 20 years rather than 20,000 years. You're gonna spend eternity worshiping this God. Do you think about this kingdom that's coming? Because it's, you know, if you think about it, you're gonna praise the Lord for, for how glorious he is. And then I would make the case that if you think about, and David would clearly say here, that as people think about and ponder upon the, the, glory, the glory of God, that they're gonna praise him for this glory and ultimately they're gonna proclaim about his coming kingdom to the people around them. Let's continue, we're running out of time here. Fourth point, his generosity. His generosity is so generous. Look at verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. 
You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. God is just absolutely generous. The way he governs is so generous. He doesn't give us what we deserve, but rather he feeds the humble, those who are bowed down. See, but that's important. Because when you believe in the true God, you must humble yourself. The only response to, to, to being told that God is absolutely glorious and holy and he's perfect is to know this very fact. There is no possible way that I can make it into heaven on my own. No possible way. There's nothing I can do to achieve that level of purity, of, of perfection, of, of righteousness, right? You, stand, you put yourself before God one day, which everyone will stand, and there will be the judgment upon death. So Hebrews tells us we're going to stand before God. We're going to see his holiness and his goodness and his perfection. And we're well, not going to stand a chance. And yeah, I talk to so many people, so many other religions who think that one day they'll stand before God and God will supposedly let them in based on something good that they've done. There's nothing more prideful than that. Nothing. To tell God one day, hey, here's what I've done. Here's a resume of things I've accomplished of which you will look over right now. You'll read over all my accomplishments and perhaps you could let me in based on them. Is that prideful or what? I mean, what are you going to do if God were to say, yeah, absolutely, come on in. You made it. Wow, good job. What are you going to do? Step one in heaven, man, I'm pretty good. Step two, man, I'm, I'm really good, actually. Step three, ooh, so-and-so's not here. I was better than them. I knew I was better than them. That's what I'd be thinking. By, the, by step four or five, I'm patting myself on the back so hard I dislocated my shoulder, right? Why? Because that's, 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 what, that's what that would produce is pride and that's why Paul says it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works. Let anyone should what? Boast. If I were to get to heaven, even through one work, even through just a baptism or through doing the right thing at the right time or whatever it is, giving some money, whatever it is, I would be stealing glory from God. Instead, the Bible says that only the humble know the Lord. And then God is so generous towards those who have submitted to him. And he opens his hands and he satisfies the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. God is so generous. And despite the fact that we choose sin over him all the time, every day, he still showers us with generosity. Do you think about how generous God is? Do you ponder upon the generosity of God towards you each and every day? That's why we pray before meals. We're, we're telling the Lord, you are so generous to us. Do you ponder about it? Do you praise him for it? And ultimately, do you proclaim that to the world around you? Last but not least, we see the grace of God. Look at what it says in verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. This is talking about salvation. He saves those who cry out to the Lord in humility. And he's near to them when they call upon him. But they're on, he's only near to certain kinds of people who call upon him. Notice what he says. 
In verse 18, only those who call upon him in truth. That's an important thing there. You can only call upon the Lord the way he wants to be called upon. That's the only way. You can't call upon him in a way that you've made up that you think is the good, right way to do it. You need to call upon the Lord the way he has established that he wants to be called upon. And there's only one name by which we can be saved that we can call upon the Lord. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, it says call upon him in truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to call upon the Lord. There's no other way for him to show his grace towards us and save us. If you're sitting here and you've never been saved, or maybe you're one of the people that think you're a good person, that you can earn God's favor, I would beg you, think about these words. Think about Jesus Christ who died on the cross in your place because you were not good enough to get enough. You're not good enough to get to him. And you desperately needed Jesus Christ to save you and to be a substitute on your behalf. A lot of religions kind of have a scale mentality where one day you'll stand before God and God's kind of going to bring out a scale and put on one side of the scale your good deeds and on the other side of the scale your bad deeds and whichever weighs more is where you'll end up. It's all about you and what you do. The fact of the matter is the scale is completely wrong. God and his absolute holiness and glory is on one side of the scale and if you stand on the other, there's no way you can match it. And what the gospel says is that Jesus Christ will stand on that scale for you and the reason why Jesus qualifies is because he is God. He has always existed. He lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and if you will let him step on the scale in your place, you can be saved, and guess what? You'll get no glory from that. You won't be able to boast about that. Jesus will get all the glory, and he deserves it. There's a sad, sad statement here that David ends it with. He says that all the wicked he will destroy. But we th I thought, Jordan, you told me that God is good. But like I said, his goodness and his greatness are not in competition with one another. He must destroy those who are prideful and will not submit to him. But he'll preserve all who love him. So do you love him? Do you love God? How do you know if you love God? Well, I'd ask you, how do you know if, you, if I love my wife? Do I, the question is, you know, if, how do you know if I love my wife? Do, do, I, do I think about her when I'm not with her? Does she come into my mind at times when I'm just thinking about her? Do I talk to her? Do I tell others about how wonderful she is? Do I randomly insert her into sermons? Right? I love my wife. And you can tell by how a person talks, how they treat them, how they treat this other person. Well, the same way, do you love God? The question has to be, do you think about him? Do you ponder upon God? We just saw five of many characteristics of God. Do you think about God in this way? If you do, then I would say, if you really love him, you're gonna praise him for it. You're gonna, you're gonna just overflow and praise to him for how good, good, how great, how glorious, how gracious, how generous he is towards you. But I would add one more, and I, I hope you'll consider this and you'll think about it. As the pastor of evangelism, I have to, right? This is my job, right? That one way we can tell if you really love this God is if you talk about him, if you proclaim him to the world around you. 
I know there's all kinds of reasons, excuses why we don't do it. But I would say, is God, is the God of Psalm 145 worthy to be proclaimed to the world? I would say yes. So is it worthy of you proclaiming him to the world? I would say yes. And he ends the, the psalm in the same way he started. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Your neighbor needs to be worshiping the Lord. And the only way he can learn about the Lord is by you telling him and you telling him about the God you serve who is great, he's good, he's glorious, he's generous, and he is so gracious towards you and that he saved you from your sin. And in the same way he saved you, he can save your neighbor or the stranger you run into tomorrow. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your grace in our lives. As we consider communion now, let our hearts be overflow in thankfulness for what you've done. Let us examine our hearts and cause us to trust you and to love you and to proclaim you to the world. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being with us today. And now, a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, emmanuelbible.church. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.